Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. My guest today is Karen Uzi, Professor of Skin Integrity at the University of Huddersfield here in the United Kingdom. I met Karen in connection with a research project a while back and found her to be highly knowledgeable about her field of activity, and that's wound healing, and also found her to be utterly charming and self-effacing. Karen trained as a registered nurse in Rochdale in the foothills of the South Pennine Mountains, then obtained further certification at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. She then attended Manchester University for a bachelor's degree in economics and social studies and a master's in health services management. Her thirst for knowledge continued with a postgraduate diploma in education, a diploma in professional practice in nursing, and then her PhD. And at Huddersfield, she obtained fellowship in the Higher Education Academy and more recently as a chartered manager. As you would expect from such an amazingly accomplished individual, she's a member of various professional medical societies and serves several in key roles. She's advised organizations, conducted research, published and presented, and now she's going to podcast. You know, Karen, I always like finding out something sort of off topic about my guests. And Karen tells me that her favorite film genre are the superhero films, especially Marvel. And she also told me in whispered tones that she loves to visit Las Vegas, especially to play the slot machines. And she confesses to be a very poor loser. Well, I'm betting that we will all be winners after hearing from our guests. So Professor Karanuzi, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. So I'm intrigued about Las Vegas. I just have this mental image of you sitting doggedly pumping coins into the one-armed bandits and, and hopefully winning. So let's start with your career path. What led you into nursing? And, and you rose through the nursing ranks were caring for the elderly and then became a lecturer in nursing. Tell us about that transition and, and your, your nursing journey. Oh, Jonathan, it's not straightforward as you could well imagine. So I started nursing mainly because when I was doing my A-levels in sixth form, a colleague of mine came up and just said, oh, I'm applying to be a nurse. Why don't you be one? Because they've got a really good social life. So I thought, yep, that'll do me. So I applied to be a nurse and, like you say, commenced at Rochdale. But then as I went through all the different training, realised that orthopaedics really was my passion. And because it was orthopaedics, we get a lot of skin integrity issues and through that really learnt and became passionate about wound care and management of wound infection and prevention of infection. And it's while I was at Hope Hospital in Salford that I started discussing with the University of Salford about developing an orthopaedic diploma for nursing staff and for anybody else really that was interested in that area. And then I moved across to be a lecturer practitioner in 1997 then a full-time lecturer in 2000 before moving to the University of Huddersfield where we've developed a range of different modules and courses around tissue viability, leg ulcers and wound management. So not quite a straightforward transition and then clearly, as you said, did an economics degree in between times. Yeah, I love meeting people who've just got a, a joie de vivre, a thirst for knowledge, a thirst for life. And I don't think I've told you this, but you know, back when I was training and I was a registrar, we used to have to go to the South Middlesex Hospital, which was pretty much just an outpatient facility. 
And there was a wonderful nurse there who ran the skin integrity clinic. And I was supposedly going there as the doctor, but I was actually there as the student. And she taught me, she just taught me everything I, I know about wound management. And you remind me so much of her. She was also from your part of the country. So it makes me smile hearing you talk. So for the last six years or so, Karen, you've served as professor of skin integrity and director of the Institute for Skin Integrity and Infection Prevention at the University of Huddersfield. So maybe start with some definitions about what are tissue viability and integrity services, because some people may not know. And tell us about your role, what you've achieved thus far, and what you hope to achieve in future years in this position. Okay, well, first I have to apologise for the length of the title of the Institute, but I've never been able to do anything in short measures, as you can probably tell. So it says I'm Director for the Institute of Skin Integrity and Infection Prevention. And this was born really out of this yearning to develop a very collaborative approach to managing skin integrity and preventing infection. So when we talk about skin integrity, it's about maintaining that barrier for the skin. So how do we stop any cuts or any wounds or any sort of break in the barrier of the skin, thereby preventing infection? But what was interesting, when we started talking about this originally at the university, we were told, oh, a lot of health that's interested in this because you all care for the wounds, you care for patients. But actually, the Institute's much bigger than that now. We have four different schools, including computing and engineering, applied sciences, which has biology and microbiology, pharmacy, pharmaceutics, and art design and architecture. And it may all sound a little bit random, but all these people have some interest in skin. So be it from being able to measure skin in engineering with their metrology services and topography, down to looking at, well, what sorts of things can we develop from a pharmacy point of view that can help prevent infection? And of course, to nursing and podiatrists, physios, paramedics, etc., who actually have that hands-on care for the end user. And a lot of this is about improving outcomes, Jonathan, as well, for the end user, be it patients, carers, or staff, and in getting their knowledge higher up and developing their skills as well. But we have to make sure that the patient's actually at the centre of all this we do. Otherwise, we can think up lots of great research ideas and go for lots of research grants. But when you speak to the patients, the practitioners will say, yeah, that's really interesting, but it's going to make no difference to what we do in the clinical areas. So ensuring patients and staff are on board with development of these research protocols and proposals make sure that the Institute has a very much a bench-to-bed ethos approach rather than just being very scientific. So we do lots of science, obviously, as well, and blue sky thinking, but we really want to make a difference to people. Yeah, because, I mean, I think it's important to maybe give listeners a perspective on what sort of patients we're talking about, because although this is largely a medical audience, a lot of people who listen in, I know because they write to us, are not medics, they're just fascinated by the world of medicine. But, you know, frankly, even people who are medics may not see people with varicose ulcers or decubitus ulcers or diabetic foot ulcers. Maybe you could just give us like a 30,000 foot view of what causes these conditions and frankly, more importantly, what it's like to live with one. Yes, that's really interesting. So when we talk about you said about bed sores or pressure sores and diabetic foot ulcers. 
people tend to think that wounds only happen on older people and they don't, they can happen on anybody. So the child falling off the push bike on the road and then getting grit into the knee, not washing it out correctly, then you end up getting an infected wound. But people who have diabetes are more at risk of getting a foot ulcer because obviously sometimes they can't feel anything that's happening in the foot. So they don't know if they've stood on a sharp object, for example. And particularly when people with diabetes who also have little feeling in their feet go on holiday, they can often burn their feet on the sand as well. So that's a way that you're going to get a break in the integrity of the skin. But there's so many different ways that we can prevent these things happening or at least reduce the risk. And that's through education and really involving people in their care and explaining that if you have diabetes, there is a higher risk of infection and maybe a break to your skin that will lead to a wound. But also to let the general public know as well that everybody's at risk of getting a wound. So we know that we get paper cuts. We know that we cut the front of our legs sometimes. We see issues with people getting onto buses. And then the first step will come down to allow the person to get on the second step to get onto the bus. But that second step doesn't come down. And often people bang the legs on that second step and end up with huge gashes down the front of the leg, which obviously can be really quite difficult to heal because it's so thin, the skin around there. So there's a range of different wounds that we look after and a range of different ages as well. And it's all about trying to inform the general public and staff about this and getting everybody involved. So all professional groups as well, Jonathan. So just not nurses, but your podiatrists who are looking after the feet, improving medics knowledge as well, because medical staff sometimes don't get a lot of information on how to manage a wound. Physiotherapists who will come onto the wards, they'll move the patients around, ask them to mobilise. Then they'll see they've got a huge dressing, so to let them know what's going on. So it's all about involving everybody and ensuring that we don't inadvertently miss somebody out. Yeah, and as you say, importantly, putting the patient at the centre of this universe. So changing tack a little bit, it's a long way from Huddersfield to Queensland in Australia, but you serve as a visiting adjunct professor at the Queensland University of Technology, and you're, you're also a visiting adjunct professor at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, and a visiting professor at Swinburne University of Technology, also in Australia. Talk us through those positions and the work you're doing in concert with those folks. Yeah, they all do sound a little bit random, don't they, when you say them out like that? This stemmed, obviously, from wound care research and skin research. And the people over at these universities who I link with also do their research in this area. But I was lucky enough a few years ago to be the recipient of a Florence Nightingale Foundation travel scholarship. And that allowed me to be able to go across to Australia, work with these people, meet all these people and discuss the issues and barriers that we have in being able to prevent wound infection and also maintain skin integrity. So I tend to go over to Australia pre-pandemic normally about once a year to visit with colleagues over there where we'll write joint papers and we'll do joint research together. And also my colleagues in Dublin go over there more often because obviously it's a lot closer. But peri-pandemic haven't travelled quite as often, but we do meet very regularly over Teams or Zoom, whichever virtual means it is. 
but everybody has a huge interest in tissue viability and wound infection. But I have to be really honest that it's such a small world and such a small specialist area that everybody knows everybody else. So it's good that we can all work together as a family, Jonathan, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, it is. I tell people, you know, when they've asked, I've had the great good fortune to collaborate with people around the world. And it turns out that, yeah, in fact, it is actually quite small and people tend to know one another. And those relationships that you develop, they turn into lifelong friendships as well as professional relationships. Absolutely. So you've developed an approach. It's a collaborative environment with disparate stakeholders. You've mentioned this already, clinicians, academia, industry. Wound management is a massive drain on healthcare resources. And I know that you're keen on developing and implementing capabilities into clinical practice to promote equity of care and provide assurance for healthcare areas, ensuring that all professionals have access to the right education. Talk us through that sort of totality, that embracing approach that you have. Of course, I'm a great believer that we should all work together and everybody be friends, really, because we're all there for the same reason, which is to improve outcomes. But like I say, education is huge in this. And over the last few years, myself and key colleagues have been working with one of our industry partners and we've developed the first online capability framework for interprofessional staff. By interprofessional, I mean anybody that works with people who have skin, basically, or who have a wound or want to prevent a wound. And this is called Tissue Viability Leading Change. And embedded in that are 13 different capabilities that we feel are appropriate that everybody should know about. So, for example, anatomy and physiology of wound healing, wound bed preparation, managing diabetes, managing the lower limb wound, etc. And this wasn't just developed on the back of a piece of paper. We went out, we spoke to a range of clinicians and asked them what they thought they needed to know. And it was from that research that we managed to develop this framework. So it was, first of all, launched in 2016 as a paper copy. It's now online so that anybody can access it and update themselves and ensure that they are meeting the capabilities to manage these wounds. We also, because obviously I work at a university, we have lots of education for tissue viability, leg ulcers, and also developing the skills of staff at a higher grade who need to understand business skills to be able to develop their own areas and their own services. Our tissue viability and leg ulcer modules are all distance learning. So that really helps practitioners, Jonathan, because they don't have to take time out of their busy days to come and attend a university. They can attend online or because everything's recorded, they can watch it at a time that meets their personal professional demands. And the business skills course just helps those staff that are at a higher grade develop that business acumen that they need when they're looking at developing services and maybe putting in business cases for more staff. So very much we try and work with, like I say, academia, clinicians and industry to ensure they have that rounded education. Okay, so I know that you've been a big proponent of the prevention and management of wound infection and have also developed a range of master's level modules. You've already mentioned some online stuff and distance learning elements. And, and your goal here is to improve teaching the management of tissue viability services. 
run us through what those have contributed and other issues relating to the prevention and management of wound infection, which is, of course, a huge issue, and we're going to come back to it. So start with that aspect. Yeah, so I'd like to just mention the courses that we run, but we also, I'm lucky enough to be the elected chair of the International Wound Infection Institute, which is a global concern where we've got key opinion leaders from across the world who all sit together to develop consensus documents, best practice documents and education for people to access free of charge to understand about infection management. We very much want to focus on the prevention of infection, clearly, but sometimes you can't always prevent an infection. So we've just recently published our updated 2022 wound infection continuum and consensus document that anybody can download free of charge from the website and implement into their own areas. It doesn't have to be primary care or secondary care. It can be care homes and nursing homes or anywhere that care is delivered. And similarly, it is global. So we've very much looked at low middle income countries as well. And again, to ensure that people are aware of wound infection and wound management and linked into all our education offerings and all the education I do always has that theme of prevention and early identification of infection embedded in there. And this is really important as well because people get confused sometimes when they look at a wound or a cut in the skin that if it's red, people think, oh, it must be infected. But it's not. Sometimes that's just a normal inflammatory process. So people don't need to go and get antibiotics, etc. for that. So it's very much getting people confidence in identifying what is an infected wound and what's an inflamed wound, for example. Okay, so that's great. So I've already mentioned your Australian and Irish collaborations, which we just talked about. Additionally, in partnership with the Journal of Wound Care, you organise and host something called Wounds Week. Sounds sounds painful. What What is it? Very painful, Jonathan. It's a conference we host online twice a year. We used to host this conference once a year on campus at Huddersfield, but then of course a pandemic struck and we couldn't do. So we moved it online and we do it twice a year now, once in July and once in December. And it runs Monday through to Friday between 6 and 7.30 every evening where we have a theme each conference. So it may be wound bed assessment or it may be management of infection or it could be lower limb wounds. And we have a keynote speaker and we try to get different people from around the world to speak so that it attracts a more global audience. And then we have a sponsored session after that that then links theory into practice a little bit. We never thought it would be so popular, in fairness, Jonathan, but we get roughly 2,000 people an evening logging into this when we run them, of which 45% tend to be from the United States around about 45% from the UK and 10% from the rest of the world and mainly the Pan-Pacific region. But we got a lot of people logging in last time in July from the Ukraine, which was interesting. But it's very much people can ask all the questions they want. Everything's recorded for 12 months afterwards. And again, free to download from the Journal of Wound Care website or the Institute's website. So it's all about making education freely available to people. Yeah, so important. And I'm sure it has a profound effect on folks around the world. 
I mentioned infection uh, just before that. Your co-author on a paper looking at the impact of care bundles on the incidence of surgical site infection. A while back, quite a few years back, I was doing some work on catheter-related bloodstream infections and the word bundle came to my attention. I hadn't come across it before other than, you know, a collection of rags and such like. (laughs) Can you explain to our audience what a bundle is and tell us about your publication on this topic? Yes, so bundles are areas of care that have been put together that people can use quite easily and that probably doesn't explain it very well at all. So we look at, if we're looking at trying to prevent surgical site infection, for example, there's certain things that we can do that can help prevent it and minimise that risk. And that's being keeping the patient warm while they're in theatre, ensuring that patients get antibiotics within an hour of knife to skin, giving antibiotics afterwards as well. And by putting all these research-based interventions into one area, we call that a bundle so that everybody's doing the same thing across the country. And then you can compare like with like, effectively. Absolutely. So we want to go into one hospital and say, what's your surgical site infection incidence? We can look at, have you been using the care bundle? Have you been meeting these targets that we're asking you to meet? And if not, we can then go and chat to people, give education and say, well, let's try and implement the bundle and see if that helps as well. These bundles are also becoming more popular as well, Jonathan, which is interesting. We've had them for the prevention incidence of surgical site infections for quite a while, but we've also got bundles that can help prevent pressure ulcers or bed sores, depending whoever's listening to the podcast. So we say that we need to be checking the patient's skin. We need to be moving the, uh, the patient regularly ensuring that we've got nutrition and pain relief, etc. And by, again, putting all these interventions into one place ensures that we have some equity of care throughout the country. Right. So let's stay with infections because we've got a big and growing problem with antimicrobial resistance and antimicrobial stewardship in wound management and other areas, of course. We've discussed this topic on this podcast a great deal, and I think it merits a lot of attention because it's a big, big problem. Talk to us about it. What what do you have to say on the matter? Oh, it's huge, Jonathan. And I'm still not convinced that some people are still taking it seriously. And we're very much looking at it in wound care at the moment. And we know that antimicrobial resistance has been classified now as a new pandemic. And if we don't take some positive approaches to reducing it, we're going to see an excess of 10 million deaths by 2050 as a direct result of AMR, and that will dwarf the deaths that have been caused by cancer. So we're very much looking at this and looking at, which when I said about being able to differentiate between inflammation and infection in a wound, this links in very nicely with antimicrobial resistance. Because if people think inflammation is an infection, the patient's then going to get prescribed antibiotics and antimicrobial wound dressings which are just going to exacerbate the problem of antimicrobial resistance. We're very much looking at the moment of developing antimicrobial stewardship, education packages, again, that people can look to. So getting pharmacy involved so we can have stop dates on antibiotics and antimicrobials. And you have to go back and see the GP or see the surgeon before you can just go and get a repeat prescription. 
to make sure that you still do have an infection and you still require those antibiotics. It's difficult. It's probably a little bit easier in the UK to be able to do that because antibiotics, antimicrobials are prescription only. But when we look at low middle income countries, sometimes you can just go into the store and buy your antibiotics over the counter. That's something that we really need to look at. But the World Health Organization has some great advice on their website and they have downloadable curriculums that people can implement into clinical practice as well. Within wound care, we're developing a range of non-medicated wound dressings, being dressings that don't actually donate antimicrobials such as silver to the wound, but work in a hydrophobic way and pull the bacteria off the wound and host it in the dressing. So we are trying to make some positive steps in this area, but we do really need to be doing more, Jonathan. Otherwise, before we know it, it'll be 2050 and we'll have no new antibiotics, no new antimicrobials, and we'll have nothing that effectively fights infections. Yeah. Again, for people who are listening who are not in the medical field, effectively what's happening is antibiotics have been overused and not just in in medicine by people going in and demanding antibiotics for a sore throat, but in the food industry, and where I think about 90% of antibiotics are used in the food industry. So people need to take action. And that means voting with your pocketbook and your wallet as to what you buy, writing letters to people, taking action, because there are already strains of certain bacteria that for which we have no antibiotics that work. So in some countries, for instance, gonorrhea, which had all but disappeared, from a, you know, being a serious disease is untreatable. And as mm-hmm. Karen said, a lot of people are going to die from conditions that would otherwise have been treatable. So we've we got to take this seriously. Yeah. So you also wrote a consensus document for the International Wound Infection Institute this year at a high level. What, what did that say? We um, launched it in March 2022 and it talks about what is infection? How do we manage infection? All focused on wounds, Jonathan. But there's also two really nice chapters in there about antimicrobial resistance and about developing antimicrobial stewardship practices as well. But we also talk a lot about debridement of wounds and biofilm. So people who maybe aren't medically minded, if you think about when you get up in the morning and your teeth always feel like they've got a film over them, so you'll brush your teeth and you'll get rid of that film. That's what a biofilm is on a wound as well. And if the wounds aren't healing, then what we need to do is disrupt that biofilm. So we scrub it away with a brush that's very, very soft. Or there's a range of different ways of scrubbing it away. So we have a chapter in there that talks about that, how to manage the biofilm and how to disrupt that biofilm as well. So it very much is an all-encompassing document all about wound identification, prevention and management of wound infection. Okay. So you also, you you co-authored a consensus document on device-related pressure damage. Tell us about that. What findings? And is it only relevant for damage caused by PPE during the pandemic? It was about device-related pressure damage originally. So this was published in the back end of 2019. And this was from a range of different professional groups, medics, nurses, physios, occupational therapists from across the world who we'd all got together and realised that we were seeing damage caused to skin by some of our medical devices, such as nasal cannulas, catheters, 
plaster of Paris and they were rubbing the skin and then patients were getting this skin damage. But there was little consensus about, well, how do we document that? How do we measure it? And how do we prevent it? So this document originally was about raising people's awareness that some medical devices that we use can cause skin damage if we don't manage them appropriately and also ensure that for example with a catheter that it's not underneath the patient's leg the patient then sits on it and they end up getting markings because of that catheter however then the pandemic struck and we saw all those dreadful pictures of nurses and medics face caused by the masks and all the different PPE they were having to wear so we wrote another chapter that very much looked at how do you prevent damage when using PPE as well. And we've updated it a couple of times, but it was originally made for device-related pressure injuries and how to prevent them and early identification. But then we had to add the other chapters because of all this damage by PPE as well. Fascinating, fascinating uh, issue. So I mentioned that when I was training as a surgeon, we had to visit this clinic where there were some wonderful nurses who would see and treat elderly folks who were sort of transported there for a cup of tea, a piece of cake and a new dressing. And, you know, it was diabetic foot ulcers, varicose ulcers and immobility and such like. I learned that there were more types of dressings than I had consumed hot dinners or, frankly, yummy cake. You've addressed ways to educate nurses and inspire confidence and competence in choosing appropriate dressings. And there are many more nowadays than when I trained. How do you recommend we do it well? And can you please, please, please do the same thing for junior doctors? Absolutely. So junior doctors have often been overlooked when it comes to wound management. And I think it's often because wound management is seen as a bit of a Cinderella service. That, oh, we don't have to worry too much about that because you're only putting a plaster on somebody. But as the years have gone on, I think people realise there's more of a scientific aspect to this as well. Junior doctors are getting a little bit more education to do with wound management, but not enough, Jonathan, at all. We do need to do more. But the tissue viability teams or the wound care teams within all the different trusts will have what we call a formulary. So that'll be where they've decided which wound products that people can get hold of. And they also have some really good posters up on the wall and lots of documentation that will show different types of wounds and then it will give you advice on which wound dressing you should be using. But what I do need to say is that remember, a wound dressing will not heal the wound. We have to look at the patient and ensure that their comorbidities have been managed correctly, that we're actually giving the patient nutrition, the patient understands about nutrition, the pain-free can mobilise if they're able, and then we use the wound dressing to help promote wound healing. So we have to try and stop. People think the dressing heals the wound. It will help it, but it won't heal it. We need to look at everything else as well. Right, right. So, yes, it is, you know, it is often seen as the patient and the wound, and instead of it being a manifestation. And little things like, well, if the patient's a smoker, then that's going to impair wound healing. All sorts of things, obviously nutrition. So... Uh, you mentioned it earlier, the Florence Nightingale Foundation. You're an invited member after receiving the competitive scholarship, I think, in 2013. The organisation, of course, is named for Florence Nightingale, who I believe founded St. Thomas's Hospital in London in 1860. Quite an honour. 
what was your work with this auspicious group? So this is when I successfully received the travel scholarship and went off to Australia and where probably the rest is history now, but we're very much looking at uh, risk assessment tools when we're over there. How do we promote quality of life for patients who have a hard to heal wound? And that's when I managed to meet all these different people, Jonathan, that we've just been talking about earlier. But also through this award, I was able to go to Alice Springs and do a couple of days with the indigenous population as well. And that was really interesting to see the different culture and how wounds can be managed with not just using Western medicine, should we say, and different ways of managing. But yes, it was an absolute honour to be awarded this and I can't thank them enough. Otherwise, I wouldn't have well been able to work with colleagues in Australia and develop these really good relationships that help improve outcomes. Yeah, it's a wonderful legacy. And to, you know, to have that on your resume, the name of, you know, one of the most famous healthcare providers in history, frankly. Mm. So, you know, congratulations. Karen, my final question, and I love asking this, it doesn't grow old for me. If you came across a faded brass lamp, maybe at some little antique stall, uh, wandering around one of the lovely towns up north, you found a faded brass lamp, rubbed it, now popped a genie who granted you three wishes to make the world a happier, healthier place. What would you ask for? Oh, goodness me. Knowing my luck, it wouldn't be a real brass lamp. I'd have a very green hand after I've rubbed it. <laughs> However, um, from a professional point of view, I'd really like people to take antimicrobial resistance seriously. Yeah. And that understand that we really do need to do something about it. I'd like to see that um, people start working together interprofessionally or multiprofessionally and appreciate each other's skills and knowledge as well, because that's the only way we're ever going to develop healthcare. And it would be nice if we had more general practitioners and just more healthcare staff and bigger hospitals so that people could get seen in a timely manner. I think that'd be my three wishes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm reflecting on them. And again, antimicrobial resistance, we can actually do something about that. So please, yeah. folks, read up on it and do your bit. Professor Karanuzi, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us, for your inquiring mind and for all you've done and will continue to do for so many. Get back to work, Karen. We need you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been my pleasure. Well, folks, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. And that you'll subscribe for our weekly shows. Please tell your friends and like us on social media. But until our next EMJ podcast, every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.